Good to see everyone this morning, and as I always say, it's a privilege to be able to have this opportunity to preach the Word. And I want to just mention that, uh, as Paul had said, this is going to be uh, a time where I'm going to have a responsibility to do this, but uh, uh, it's been my desire for some time, for years actually, to preach a series of sermons on a Christian or a biblical worldview. And I knew it would take a series in order to do this, and I'm regretful that the uh, circumstances that brought this opportunity about are Paul's uh, surgery, but uh, I'm, we're praying, obviously, for him, that God might quicken him and he will be able to return even sooner than expected. But for the next six weeks, I'm going to be preaching a series on a biblical worldview, what that means and why we need one. That is indeed the title of this sermon today, is why we need a biblical worldview. I will invite you to turn in First Chronicles to chapter 12. First Chronicles chapter 12. And really beginning in verse 23, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to highlight some things for you. It says in verse 23 of First Chronicles, Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron, to turn the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. And then after this, you'll see in the next few verses, the listing of those tribes that gathered at Hebron, which is in Judah, in the southern kingdom. It hadn't become the southern kingdom at that stage. It obviously was all one kingdom, uh, united under Saul, but then really kind of divided as the struggle ensued, Saul trying to kill David in every opportunity that uh, came to pass, practically. And the fact is, is that uh, this is the time now when finally King David was going to assume the throne according to the anointing of God. And this is the recounting of those tribes that came and gathered there for the purpose of acknowledging that. It it was a great army, really, that had uh, been gathered. And it goes on to list those tribes and particular individuals who gathered people of great influence and people of great leadership ability. And it says there in verse 32, now remember that Issachar was one of the smallest tribes in all of Israel. And it says, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And their chiefs were 200 and their kinsmen were all at their command. The tribe of Issachar, the only one that it says this about, were the men who understood the times and who had knowledge of what Israel was to do. It goes through and lists the other tribes that gathered, Naphtali and Manasseh, and on and on, and talked about this one tribe as a tribe who understood the times and knew what Israel was to do. It concludes in verse 38... All these, being men of war, who would draw up in battle formation, came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David the king. And this is truly when the kingdom of Israel was planted in ever since the word. The kingdom as God intended it to be with David, a man after his own heart, at its helm, at its leadership. But I thought it was interesting to know, and this series is entitled, Understanding the Times, Developing a Biblical Worldview. 
We're going to talk about this morning, we're going to use a PowerPoint presentation to accelerate this and to kind of reinforce it some, but I wanted to, uh, to mention to you that we need to, first of all, understand what a worldview is and what role it plays in our thinking as Christians and why it's necessary and how we are to use it and how we are to look at the world because a worldview is really like a prism and all of it comes in and we kind of divide and understand things in its segments. And actually, the very first slide is a definition of a worldview by Norman Geisler and William Watkins, which reads, a worldview is a way of developing or, inter- or viewing or interpreting all of reality. It is an interpretive framework, and that's a key word to understand. It's a framework through which and by which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. Let's look at another definition. This one's by Dr. James Kennedy, the late Dr. Kennedy. And he defines a worldview as really kind of a worldview and a life view. He says it's a set of assumptions or presuppositions that determine the way we look at the world and our place in the world. These then largely determine how we consider everything that comes down the path. The things that happen to us day by day. Our worldview colors how we interpret them and how we react to them in every sense of the world. So it's an important thing. And it's, it's another word that you're not going to find worldview in any translation of the Bible into English. It's a German word, actually. But you'll find, just like you won't find Trinity. But the fact is, is that it's, we'll look at the scriptures this morning to understand this, but the fact is all of us have worldviews, one way or the other. Whether we realize it or not, we do. Let's look at another one where James Kennedy makes a comment about worldview, and he says... A worldview, and he's quoting two other people, by Chuck Colson being one of them, and Piercy, is simply the sum total of all our beliefs. It's the big picture that directs our daily decisions and actions. A worldview needs to be carefully considered and decided upon, otherwise we would be subconsciously directed into making decisions and may not know why we're making them. It's the sum total of all of our beliefs about the world. It's a capsulation, encapsulation, if you will, of all those things that uh, add up to us the way we look at the things that happen around us. I'd caution you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You know, when Paul preached his series of sermons several months ago on Colossians, the Colossians were under the influence of a lot of Greek philosophy. And philosophy is another way of saying worldview, if you will. How you look at things, how you interpret them. And basically, he was cautioning them about the fact of being subdued or uh, subverted by the traditions of man. And we hear, we'll hear this through the scriptures because... The, uh, the traditions or the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, and we'll refer to that again later. Under another definition, here is one by David Noble, and I borrowed heavily, matter of fact, from his book, Understanding the Times, uh, The Religious Worldviews of Our Day and the Search for Truth. It's important to understand that, he says, the worldview refers to any ideology or philosophy or theology or movement or religion 
that provides an overarching approach to understanding the world, and uh, God and the world, and man's relationship to, the, to God and the world. Specifically, a worldview should contain each of the following ten disciplines. And we're going to talk more about these later. It should contain disciplines or interpretations or categories of theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. And we're going to talk in specific terms because those are going to be the focus over the next five weeks. We're going to take two of them at a time. I'm going to break it down in terms to how our worldview helps us interpret the things that happen to us relative to our theology. Because we have a theology, whether we understand it or not, we have one. And it also helps us interpret the economics that we face and what that means. And economics can mean more than just the, the macro economics that we face in our country today. It means the way that we handle things that are under our control, uh, the way we handle God's resources. So each worldview offers a particular perspective from which to approach each discipline, and conversely, each discipline is value-laden with worldview implications. A worldview answers four questions, four key questions. Any worldview does. Where do I come from? Why is the world in such a mess? Is there a solution? And what's my purpose in all of this? Every single worldview really answers those questions. Some of the, question, the, ways, some of the answers would not be very desirable, but they're answered nonetheless. If you take your secular humanist worldview, where do I come from? What do you think the answer is? You evolve. It's, there's nothing to do with creation in that. Because Marxist-Leninist or secular humanism or cosmic humanism, just some of those worldviews will say, you evolved. You came from some lower form of life and became something else. Gives no credit whatsoever to the creation of God. Let's see the bits and pieces instead of the whole. That's the problem we face. And Francis Schaeffer, in his book, A Christian Manifesto, in 1981, wrote these words. He said, the basic problem of the Christian in this country, in regard to society, in regard to government, is that they have seen things as bits and pieces instead of totals. Christians gradually have become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally abortion. But they have not seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in the worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. I'd say, and I can testify from my own knowledge and experience, that if there was a general worldview espoused when I was growing up, it is certainly one that is completely different than the one that we will hear today. And I had said to the first service, if you listen to television very often, and most of us probably do, you're, going to, you're getting a perspective of a worldview from the person that's talking, whether it's a news show or whether it might be a commercial. You're hearing a worldview propagated. And you need to be aware of what that worldview is and its implications and what it means, especially in relationship to your Christian life. As you measure it against the scriptures, 
God's word of truth. And you'll, we'll talk more about this later, but it is imperative that we understand things in that way. Because there's a cosmic struggle, if you will, between worldviews. Again, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy said in this one, and let me just quote this, I've, a debilitating weakness in modern evangelicalism is that we've been fighting scult, uh, cult, cultural skirmishes on all sides without knowing what the war it is, itself is about. We have not identified the worldviews that lie at the root of the cultural conflict. And this ignorance dooms our best efforts. The cultural war is not just about abortion, homosexual rights, or the decline of public education. These are only skirmishes. The real war is a cosmic struggle between worldviews, between the Christian worldview and the various secular and spiritual worldviews arrayed against it. And I emphasize that. That's my emphasis. There are other spiritual worldviews. One of them, and we're going to talk about this from time to time, as we, we speak in terms of worldviews and its implications as it relates to those ten categories, we're going to talk about what other worldviews propagate as truth. For instance, Islam has a worldview. It's comprehensive. It covers everything. That's why they have Shahira law. But the fact is, is that they have worldviews. It is a theology that there is a God. It's a Unitarian God. It's not a Trinitarian God. It's a Unitarian God. And nevertheless, they have views in every aspect of life. But so then, though some claim they don't, though so then does cosmic humanism or secular humanism. Those are some of the other worldviews as well as long as, as well as I should say, Marxist-Leninism, and postmodernism. Those are some of the other worldviews we'll talk about in this period of time. I'd be mindful of just to remind you of this in, in, in Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness, wickedness in the heavenlies. That's our struggle. We have, indeed, a conflict, a cosmic struggle of worldviews going on in our day and age. Let's talk about the value of having a biblical worldview. Worldviews will inevitably be shaped either by the media or by the Bible. Unfortunately, Christians have all too often neglected the command of God to love God with all of our minds, not just our hearts. This is a result of emphasizing feeling over thinking. We need to learn to think biblically and to have the integrity to live out what the Bible teaches since it alone provides a true, livable worldview. Worldviews contradict each other and cannot all be true. Only the biblical worldview gives us a complete and true picture of the world as it really is. We need to be conscious about the first commandment. The first commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and with all of our strength, with the totality of our being. But we need to understand that God doesn't ask us to be mindless. He asks us to have our minds renewed in Christ Jesus that we might know the wisdom of God. And by knowing God's wisdom, 
we're able to appraise, spiritually appraise, and we'll talk more about that, what's happening around us on a day-to-day basis. In 2007, George Barna, the George of the Barna Group, did a research with about a thousand Christians, uh, people who claim to be Christians. And he did this research in order to understand their worldview, if you will, and who had a biblical worldview and who did not. And he asked them questions basically that said, how do you go about making moral choices? And 54% of them said that we make moral choices on the basis of the principles or standards that we've accepted as true. That's the way we make moral choices. 24% said they make choices on the basis of doing what feels right or comfortable. 9% said they make choices based on whether it makes the most people happy or causes the least amount of conflict. It's a strange reason to make a moral choice. But nevertheless, that's the results he achieved. And 7% said they make moral choices based on the most positive outcome, whatever that might be. So that's the way some people said that they make moral choice, but only 54%, just barely over half, said they make it according to some kind of principle or standard that they believe in. Now, the Bible as a source of principles... And the next slide says that among those who make moral choices on the basis of specific principles or standards, only three in ten name the Bible. I don't know what kind of principles or standards they had other than that, the other seven, but three in ten basically said the Bible's our standard here. It is our source of principles. Overall, that therefore just one in six adults claim the Bible as a source of decision-making. Six out of ten of these who did not use the Bible as a source claimed to be evangelicals. That's amazing. Six out of ten who did not use the Bible still claimed to be evangelical Christians. Only two out of ten non-evangelicals who claimed to be born again, that was one of the categories that Barna had, actually uh, used the Bible. Let's underscore what the moral truth really means here for a second. Of those 1,000 and actually two people who took the survey, slightly more than one-third believed that moral truth was absolute. It was almost an equal share. It was about 35% to be exact. Another third thought that moral truth was determined by the situation or the circumstances. And the, the other third didn't know one way or the other whether there was absolute moral truth or whether it was relative. And that tells you that some people really were lacking in terms of a moral compass who had little understanding of how to go about making the truth, but they first of all believed that there just wasn't such a thing as absolute moral truth. In trying to determine whether a person had a worldview, Barnum went through a process of of categorizing those things that were going to be common among people who claim to have a moral, or to, uh, claim to have a biblical worldview. And this next slide kind of goes through those things. This is the, the, the basic requirement. This is very basic. You could get down to a far more refined. But first of all, it was someone who believed in a moral truth, absolute moral truth, and who believed that the source of that moral truth was the Bible. Those were the two most important criteria to begin with. They also believe 
that the Bible was accurate in all the principles it taught. They felt that eternal salvation could not be earned. It came by grace. There's no way you could earn your way into salvation by God. They believed that Jesus lived a sinful, uh, pardon me, a sinless life. They believed that he lived a sinless life and therefore would have been a, the, the only kind of sacrifice that would have been sufficient for our sins. And they also believe that every person has a responsibility to share the religious belief. And that Satan is a living force, not a symbol. He is real. There's evil in the world. And that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful maker of the universe and who still rules creation today. Now those were the criteria that was established to determine whether someone had a biblical moral view. I have no argument with it. I think it's good criteria. But the next slide shows the interesting results of the survey that Barna did in 2007. And by the way, it was a verification of a survey he did three years earlier, in 2004. So the fact is, is that by his criteria, that criteria I just discussed with you before, only 5% of the respondents had a biblical worldview. 5%. Believers, yes, having a biblical worldview. Among those who had a biblical worldview, almost half of those, of that 5%, were evangelicals. Interesting, 8% would have been classified as Protestants. And of the Catholics who had a biblical worldview, only about one half of 1% claimed to have a biblical worldview. That's an interesting thing. It tells you a little bit about the content of the survey how desperately needed it is to understand this. Some other factors that came, through, uh, came forth from the survey, uh, the truth, morals, and spiritual perceptions that people had. In his survey, 62% of Americans consider themselves to be deeply spiritual. That's an unimaginable percentage. If it were true, my goodness, we wouldn't have much of a problem in this, in this country today. But the fact is, 62% claimed that. The younger the respondent, the less likely they were to have a biblical worldview or to claim to be deeply spiritual. Ten of, ten, nine of ten adults were, felt like they were accepted by God. And that's a broad term. It's purposeful, a broad term. What does it mean to be accepted by God? And four out of five felt, out they felt like that they were clear about the purpose and meaning of life. So it was interesting to kind of see that perspective in terms of that, but yet only 5% had a biblical worldview. I'd like to just shift for a moment to talk about what we're going to be preaching on over the next five weeks. And I had mentioned these ten categories before, and I think it's, it's nice to clarify what we mean by this and how they're going to fit together and how they're going to provide us with a comprehensive understanding of what it means to have a biblical worldview. First of all, we're going to preach next week about theology and philosophy. Theology is the study of the existence, nature, and attributes of God. It has a key question. It says, what about God? Who is he? How do we relate to him? Also, philosophy is the attempt to discover an explanation for the whole or the existence of reality. It says, basically, what's real? What is real? And if, if some of you, I can remember being exposed to 
um, another friend of mine back in my days at Baylor who had gone through uh, his first philosophy class. He came to Baylor as a ministerial student. He left as an unbeliever. And basically, the philosophy class that he had cast doubts in his mind because he was so groundless in the scriptures, because he didn't have a mature faith. He didn't have really, truly a comprehensive faith. He had no comprehensive worldview of who God was and who Jesus Christ is. And as a consequence, it was amazing what that first philosophy class did to him. He he used to discuss with me his beliefs, and it was just amazing how it just was so destructive of his fundamental aspects, of the fundamental aspects of his faith. He came away with questions that he couldn't answer. The week after that, we're going to talk about ethics and law. And ethics is the study of what is right and wrong behavior. Its question is, what is right? Law is the study of the basic principles of nature and, the human, condu- and human conduct that are expected to be observed. Its question is, who makes the rules? And by the way, this comes from a great source, again, uh, called Summit Ministries, which is a group that really has focused strictly upon helping people to have a biblical worldview. The week after that, we'll talk about biology and psychology. Biology is the study of the origin and the development of, of living organisms. It says, what about life? Psychology is the study of the soul, mind, and spirit. It says, what about human nature? And then we'll talk about sociology and politics. The sociology says the study of, is the study of social institutions and society. Its question is, what about society? That's life in general as we live it day to day. Politics is the art of governing a city, state, or a nation. And it is, what about government? And lastly, we'll talk about economics and history. And in economics, that's the management of resources, whether by an individual or by a society. Its question is, what do we do about money? And lastly, history is a study of the past persons, of the past persons, places, and events, and how they influence the future and the present. It says, what about the past? And it's interesting if you take and contrast the worldviews, their, their, their perspective on history. The biblical worldview is linear. History has a beginning. It was called the creation. And there will be an end when a new heaven and a new earth will be created by our God. And we will be with him forever but is linear, a beginning and an end. And with a secular humanistic viewpoint, there is no such thing. Because we evolved. And what will we become? We're not sure. But that's the difference of a worldview, whether it is a biblical one or one that's based on man's wisdom. On the back of your study guide is the chart that's called the essence of a biblical worldview. And this is those same disciplines focused in, biblically, if you will, from a Christian perspective. And they, the theology is, our view of God is, obviously, it is one that's called theism. There is a God. And Trinitarianism, in particular, there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our philosophy is based on the reality of the fact that God has intervened in history in supernatural ways. 
It is supernaturalism, if you will, because we believe in God being in charge of all the events. Our view of ethics, our morality, that there are moral absolutes, that God has made it clear in his word what those are through his commandments. Law is the view of the source of law, is natural law. God has established in, among his, as well as the law, as we say in, in Old Testament terms, God has established natural law for man. We don't kill one another when we disagree. That's part of God's natural law. We don't commit adultery when we just feel like it. Because God has established a natural law which makes it, that, that gives us a sense that that's wrong. There's all things. We don't steal whenever we just feel like it. Because God's given us the natural law that should give us a respect for others' properties and things. I mean, those are just some of the things, and we're talking about those that are basically very elementary. Psychology, or biology, rather, is the fact that the view of our origins is that we were created by God. He made man in his own image. And in psychology, the view of mankind, we understand that man is a fallen creature, that Adam chose to sin and thereby rebelled from God, and sin and death entered the world. And it gives us a completely different viewpoint because most other worldviews do not consider sin whatsoever. There's no mention of them. No mention of rebellion of God. Our view of sociology focuses around the traditional home, our church, our state. These are elements of the sociology that we face with the, the politics. Our view of government is that it is to provide justice, freedom, and order, and protection for its citizens. Our view of economics has to do with the stewardship for which we are charged as believers. God has made us stewards over his resources. And lastly, our view of the meaning of history is that there is a historical resurrection. I want you to think for just a moment, because I'm a history buff. I can't help but think these ways. What's the watershed event of all human history? The watershed event. I think it was the resurrection. They had actually crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's the watershed event of all human history. It changed everything. Everything. As nothing else could be changed. But by God's divine intervention, through his redemption, human history was changed. And... There's, that's why I say human history is linear. There is a beginning, there is an end. In the middle, if you will, the watershed event of all of that is Jesus Christ. That's the view, the biblical worldview of history. That's why it differs from secular humanism, or cosmic humanism, or Islam, or anything else, especially those that have really as their very foundation an atheistic approach, an atheistic viewpoint or worldview. Let's talk about scriptural basis for a biblical worldview because the scriptures speak pretty clearly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, it reads, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Think about what that means in terms of our worldview. What a difference it makes to understand that how can anyone, how can anyone who claims to be a Christian grasp at some of the things that are taught in a secular humanistic worldview? Especially one that's based and rooted in atheism. We have the wisdom of God. And the next uh, verse of scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Think of that. That we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, contributing spiritual or combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What gift God has given us. What a gift he has that we might know all these things. The wisdom of the world cannot comprehend it. They're foolishness. So those who have not been born again, those who are not changed by faith in Christ Jesus, will never comprehend our biblical worldview. It is impossible. It's a mystery to them. It's foolishness. The Jews looking for signs, the Greeks that were looking for wisdom, they just couldn't comprehend it. Remember what kind of reaction the Apostle Paul received on Mars Hill when he was in Athens during his missionary journey? Remember, he talked to them about their statue they had erected to the unknown God because they wanted to cover all the bases. They had statues to Zeus and whoever, and obviously Mars and whoever else that were there, but yet they had one statue called to the unknown God. And he came to tell them about that. And he mentioned God the Creator, and he mentioned the resurrection. And as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, they were just offended. They just couldn't comprehend it. They, they, could, they didn't want to take any more of it. Come back, get back with us later to talk about this. We don't want to talk about it now. That's the essence of what they really said. That's the foolishness. That's the reaction of the foolish world to the wisdom of God. And we've got to understand the scriptural basis for our worldview. Let's talk just briefly and last about why we need a biblical worldview. Because the whole purpose of the biblical worldview is simply this 
that we might see things the way that Jesus Christ sees things. Unless you are grounded in the Word of God, unless your worldview emanates from the Scriptures, you're not going to see things the way that Jesus sees things. In the first service this morning, we sung the grand old hymn, Set My Soul on Fire, Lord. And what a tremendous hymn it was. Because it's what we need. If we're going to evangelize the world, we need a biblical worldview. We need Christ in every aspect and category and every discipline of our life. We need him. He's sufficient for all things. He's sufficient for economics. He's sufficient for biology, psychology, theology, philosophy, everything. He is sufficient for it all. We need a biblical worldview that's rooted and grounded in the truth of the scriptures as revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Also, there's another reason. If we want to see things the way that Jesus sees sees things, we need the mind of Christ. We need the mind of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's so imperative that we be able to think like him and see the things he sees. And also we need to be totally committed to him, totally submitted. And it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now think about the other worldviews that compete with a biblical worldview. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And it says, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Actually, having a biblical worldview is not really an option. It's not an alternative that we can or can do without. It's something we're commanded to do. We are to bring every thought captive to the, in, in obedience to Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ, to see things the way he sees them, to think the way he thinks, and react the way that Jesus would react. Lastly, it prevents us from being conformed to the world. In Romans 12, too, Paul says, And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're not to be conformed to the world. We're to have a different worldview, if you will than the wisdom that, that this world affords. And the wisdom that this world affords is foolishness to God. And we need to seek Christ in all aspects of our life. We need to have the mind of Christ. That is the biblical worldview. So that our minds might be transformed and renewed in Christ Jesus. That's the challenge we face today. And we're going to talk in terms of what that means in many different disciplines and areas of our life over the next five weeks. I hope you'll pray for me, and I'll be praying for you, that we might together have a better understanding of what this means and why God wants us to have, to share a biblical worldview, one that's grounded in the Scriptures, grounded in His truth. Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your gracious blessings and that you pour out upon us day by day. Thank you, God, for the blessing of your truth in Christ Jesus. 
that you have given us the ability to have the knowledge. You've freely given these things to us. The knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. The knowledge, God, that leads to eternal life. The knowledge that glorifies him who's worthy of all praise. Thank you, Father, that you have made it possible by the regenerating work of your resident Holy Spirit within us. And thank you for him who has sealed us to the day of redemption, who's made it clear for us what we should do. Lord, Father, I pray more than anything else that we might have the mind of Christ, that we might see things the way you see them, Father, the way Jesus sees them, that we might think like Christ Jesus our Lord and thereby bring glory and honor to his name in the way that we live and move and have our being. I ask it so that he alone receives the glory. Amen.